You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 2nd, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, everybody. Do you know what happened in 1942 on this date? Hitler was killed. No. <laughs> it happened in Chicago, Illinois. Does that... Does that Yes, uh, one mobster killed another mobster. The same Valentine. No, wait. (laughs) The December 2nd massacre. (laughs) (laughs) Of of atoms, I guess you could say, because the first self-sustained nuclear chain reaction was demonstrated. Oh, all those poor Chicago by Enrico Fermi and his team. Fermi. So they blew up the city? Yeah, you'd you'd think so. No, but they did build this... Uh, device under they built it in a makeshift lab underneath the university football stands at Stag Field on the uh, campus of the University of Chicago. And did they have a bunch of nutcases saying they were going to cause the end of the world and claiming that the machine itself was going back in time to stop it from working? No, they were too busy fighting a world war and figuring out how to make atomic weapons because this was all part of the Manhattan Project. Oh, um, right. So, <laughs> so they had to deal with those pressing issues. What the later. Manhattan Project took place in Chicago, right? The increasingly poorly named. <laughs> so Manhattan. confusing to people not of this country. <sighs> okay, so that's a pretty significant uh, moment in science history. Well, you know what else happened recently? No, Thanksgiving. Did you guys have a nice Thanksgiving? Yes, it was awesome. We did. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still digesting. Yeah, Steve, how was your meal? Steve, how was your baby? <laughs> did you did you eat a nice, delicious baby for Thanksgiving? Oh my goodness! Oh my god! And you and Paul Don't offered at the get same me table. Started. That was impressive. He doesn't he doesn't like him so rare though. That what was that uh, <laughs> comment that um, W C Fields oh. made? I love babies. I like them fried. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> slow roasted. So Rebecca, whatever are you talking about? Oh, I'm glad you asked, Jay. Steve eats babies for Thanksgiving. That's right. <laughs> uh, actually, what I am talking about is um, someone actually accused Steve of eating babies for Thanksgiving. Uh, and that, that someone being the increasingly insane Age of Autism blog, which is the home to the Dark Ages, apparently. They're the people who think that vaccinations cause autism, and therefore anyone who believes that vaccines do not cause autism and that vaccines, in fact, save, oh, millions and millions of lives every year um, are uh, literally killing babies. So these horrible people did this terrible Photoshop of some of the more prominent pro-science-based medicine advocates sitting around a dinner table feasting upon the flesh of a baby because that's the level of discourse these days so they've got steve there they have amy wallace who who wrote that great wired article um about the the anti-vaxxers they have paul offit who uh has quite literally saved millions of lives with his vaccine so yeah i mean it's that that in and out of itself was pretty ridiculous and uh, surely the comments can't be that much worse, but they were they were really horrible because not only were these people 
cheering on this um, stupid Photoshop thing. But they were adding to the discourse with the most ridiculously, randomly misogynistic comments as well. One commenter called uh, the pro-science side uh, a whorehouse, and another person wrote uh, about Dr. Nancy, which is another pro-science yeah. Right, who who wasn't pictured, and someone said, "Oh, well, where's where's Dr. Nancy?" And this person, Stag Mom, replied, "Dr. Nancy's under the table servicing." Well, I won't read it because it's pretty bad. Uh, basically, um, you get the idea from that point. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's it's even worse than you can imagine. Um, what what she actually says? They are astoundingly sexist. It's a that they're just anti-science, but that they resort to this incredible misogyny, the likes of which you wouldn't really expect from a group of people who claim to be attempting to save mothers or save, you know, help mothers mm-hmm. and save children. You would think that they would be rather compassionate toward women. The interesting thing was that after I, I posted the, the bit on Skeptic, Orac, contacted me and uh, said, oh, you know, thanks for the the article, just so you know. Um, And then he included a few little tidbits that I wasn't aware of previously. And and then he did a a really great post on it. So I recommend, if you don't read Respectful Insolence, you should go out and read it now because it's fantastic. But he pointed out that one of the comments that I had gotten a screen capture of, the, the one about Dr. Nancy, was written by uh, not just your average commenter, but someone who was quite prominent amongst the anti-vaxxers. But it was written by a woman named Kim, Kim Stagliano, who goes by Stag Mom, who is um, quite a prominent anti-vaxxer. She's one of the leaders of this movement. She's been on, uh, she writes articles for the Huffington Post, among others. She has her own blog that's uh, quite popular amongst the anti-vaxxers. So, I hope that nobody that that it doesn't go the other way. Like I, I know that sometimes we can get pretty vicious about people who are spreading pseudoscience and misinformation. I want to encourage everybody out there: never let the conversation get this low. Because she made herself look horrible. They ended up going back and deleting the comment, but obviously I've got a screen capture of it, so it's yeah. pretty obvious that it happened. Um, and the the comments to. This post on Age of Autism, a number of them were from people saying, you know what, I agree with you in general about autism and I followed this blog, but I've just lost all respect for it because of what you're stooping to. So I think people are starting to see exactly how nutty some mm-hmm. of these, these people are. As terrible as the blog post was and... Uh, as awful as it is to suggest that Steve is feasting on young babies for Thanksgiving, um, it's actually kind of nice to see that their true colors are showing through and people are starting to recognize exactly how far out on the fringes uh, groups like Age of Autism are, and hopefully they'll, they'll start losing some steam through things like this. Orak also brought up a good point, though, that this certainly represents the demonizing of the opposition, Right. Yeah. And this shows you where their mentality is. They are not engaged in a, you know, any kind of an honest discourse or 
they're not just interested in the truth or or even just protecting their children they they are now wrapped up in this conspiracy theory and they have thoroughly demonized the other side and he said this is the, they're taking the same path that the um, anti-abortion fanatics took that where they you know increasingly work each other up into this self-righteous frenzy where things like this become acceptable and this is also the sort of the, the logical if you will extension of their premise which is that anyone who disagrees with them essentially is deliberately knowingly engaged in a campaign of harming and killing children because they're being paid by the pharmaceutical industry that they are engaged in a literal holocaust you know against children so if you if they really believe that it's scary the kind of things that, that they could then justify to themselves. They did themselves a disservice by not only putting it up there, but by afterwards not saying, you know, maybe we went too far. But they, they a lot of the people on there, including the editor of the blog, supported it and didn't, didn't, oh, yeah. didn't point, take Jay. away anything from it. Yep, they had a chance to retract or they had a chance to clarify, correct, make some kind of, or outright apologize for it. It's been how many days now? Not a, not a peep, nothing. In fact, you know, by the, their silence is encouraging it. At like, at what point can we hold blogs accountable for stirring up that kind of hatred, that kind of violent uh, imagery and tendencies mm-hmm. in their commenters? Well, and I think that this is a case where we can hold them accountable. I think when you show these, when you show doctors eating a baby, like I, I think it's fair to hold them accountable for whipping up their uh, readers into a frenzy that could have some very negative results. Mm-hmm. First of all, there's a freedom of speech issue, and I would never want to step on anyone's rights to do that. And uh, if anything, they're basically giving a very detailed and long-winded reason why rational people aren't going to read this blog anymore. I mean, if anything, like I said before, they're burying themselves. If a new person came to that website, took a look at that picture, read you know, a handful of the posts that were on there, they basically get the gist of not only the readership but of the editorial policy right. and probably not, never want to go back. That this is not a serious forum for this, for this discussion and this debate. I think you're right, Jay. Well, to be clear, I'm not... I mean, this isn't a freedom of speech issue at all. I'm not suggesting that they be censored in any way. What I'm suggesting is should they be responsible for whipping their crowd into a frenzy? Um, and I think that they should. But, Rebecca, you know, they are responsible, I think, for much greater atrocities, and that is not just whipping people up in, into, you know, a fervor, but they are doing a massive amount of misinformation spreading. I mean, they are misinforming thousands and thousands of people that that are genuinely looking for legitimate information on autism and how to protect their family, and, and you know, trying to make decisions like that, and you know, and as we all know, this is this is where the death toll adds up. One more point I want to make. One thing occurred to me as I read through all of these posts, and you know, <clears throat> because I know Steve, and I know the truth, you know, that a lot of their claims are actually wrong, or you know, they're, all their claims are wrong, in my opinion. You know, I know that Steve is not a shill for the pharmaceutical industry. I know that Steve loves and cares for his children and in no way is this demon that they're painting. And I you know and I I can say I have never in all these years I've never seen Steve <laughs> eat any kids. It hits home even harder for me because you know where I'm not 
they're not referring to people that I don't know anything about, and I happen to personally know one of them very well. I mean, I you know I know for certain that they are wrong, and they right. know for certain that they're right. Right? That's what they think. That they to the same level of intensity that I know I'm right. They think they're right. It makes me sick to hear good people talk poorly about you know. And I feel I feel sorry for a lot of those people on there. I, yeah, I I agree. I mean, it does it does bring it home when it's about somebody that you know, right? Of course, yeah. I know myself, right? I, I know it's it's they're they're attacking some cardboard cartoon childish image that they've concocted in their mind because it's easy because it it fits their ideology and their fanaticism, and that's as far as they want to go. They don't want to consider that there may be some legitimacy to somebody who takes a different view that. They, they can't even honestly disagree anymore. They can't even say that, listen, we disagree over the scientific evidence. Yeah. To them, it's, it's Satan versus the righteous. That's it. That, and that's all they need to know. They can't accept the fact that you might be right. ignorant of the truth. You are in on it. And let's face it. All I have ever done is comment on the published scientific data. Right among the hundreds of other topics that I discuss, like what do they think that this whole skepticism thing is just a cover so that I can shill for the pharmaceutical industry? I mean, it's it's naive on so many levels. They they really are making zero attempt to put it into any kind of a context or to even consider other interpretations or other views of reality. It, it, they are fundamentalist fanatics by any definition. Yep. But let's move on because I think we spent enough time on those guys. Uh, Bob, can you tell us about Porkenstein? <laughs> did you, oh, wait a minute. Did you, did you come up with that, Steve? Yeah. That was good. Bravo. So apparently, scientists in Holland have grown pork in a Petri dish for the first time. So you want to know how it tastes? Like bacon? Kosher. I, I can't tell you. They're actually not allowed to taste it yet. It's against the rules. <laughs> what? Why? What? They're, they're not allowed for some reason that was not spelled out. They are not allowed to, to eat the fruits of their labor. Don't eat the meat, see? That, How could they not do it? I'm sure they – I don't know what, what their reasons are, but I, I, know why. I assume – Why, Evan? Why? Because it tastes like people. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> there you go. Well, lab-grown meat tastes like people. People. I assume that, that they eventually plan to taste it, though, because they're, they're predicting that within five years they could be – Offering artificially grown pork to consumers, so that would be interesting. Five years is uh, not too far away. Well, Bob, they they better taste it way before then. I mean, I hope they. Yeah, yeah. They better I'm taste sure, it I'm before sure me. That's all I care. Guys, I read an I read an order I read an article on this in Pork Magazine. I mean, I I picked it up <laughs> oh, because I thought it was a porn mag, <laughs> but it turns out that it's actually it's about <laughs> pigs. So- <laughs> Wait, Bob, all Yo. I care about. Just tell me. When am I going to be able to push a button on a wall and have bacon come out like like a deck of cards? Like an ATM machine. <laughs> like a deck of cards? In, in eight, in eight years it? and three months, Jay. I just want like a block of bacon to come out. I just okay. want to eat bacon. <laughs> God. I would love that. Well, I guess it would be nice to know – it would be nice to be able to eat something like that and uh, knowing that they didn't have to kill Wilbur to, to get it for you as much as I, yeah. as much as I love – pork Something. but the, what they call this so this is called in vitro or cultured meat and as usual i think this could be huge mark post is a professor of physiology at uh, eindhoven university uh, he's a leading the dutch government funded research he said that you could take the meat from one animal and create the volume of meat previously provided by a million animals 
Whoa. A million? Yeah. Wait a minute. The, a million? Absolutely. Theoretically, but it's going to ultimately come down to economics, Bob. It's actually kind of cheap to make pork from pigs, you know, rather than growing it in a Petri dish. How do they do it? Well, you breed one pig to another one. They have babies. You feed the babies, and they grow up into bigger pigs. Wow, <laughs> that's that's the, that's old fashioned, man. That's Steve. That's so retro. Yeah, that's Steve. That <laughs> standard sex thing. That is so yesterday, right. man. But Jay, the process is pretty straightforward. You take you take cells from the source animal. In this case, it's a pig. Uh, the, the cells that they take, they're muscle cells. They're called myoblasts, which is kind of like a proto muscle cell. When myo when myoblasts kind of fuse all together, you but you get muscle tissue as you as you imagine it they take these cells and they start dividing when they put them in this special nutrient broth uh, which is created from get this the blood products of animal fetuses mm. now this is obviously a problem I mean if your Steve, goal is this what you drizzle over your baby turkey dinner <laughs> <laughs> Nutrient broth made from animal fetuses. Fetuses, yes. <laughs> oh my god! Now, obviously, this is a problem. If your goal is to limit any connection to live animals, and yeah, this is going to be a problem. But they, as usual, <laughs> they're confident that they'll be able to create a synthetic substitute, and that would be yeah. kind of important. Yeah, we're going to grow right? pig muscle in a petri dish. So we don't have to kill pigs, and we're going to feed it ground-up <laughs> pigs. That makes also, sense. we have to sacrifice five pigs to the god of pigs. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, this is this is really creepy, man. Bob, did you know, did you know that Winston Churchill uh, kind of predicted this fifty years ago, or no, not fifty years ago, from the nineteen thirties? He actually said, fifty years hence, we shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under a suitable medium." Kind of kind of funny. He pretty and much. And then the other it. part of that that quote was, "And I'm going to push a button on the wall, and it'll come out like a <laughs> right." <laughs> All right, guys. So you got these cells that are dividing and dividing. After lots of cell divisions, you, what you have is you have this what I call couch potato muscle because uh, it's kind of they, they refer to it as soggy pork, not very you know not very buff muscle. Yeah. So they 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 need to exercise. They need to um, to do something to it, and they're not quite sure exactly what they're going to do to it, but they need to exercise it. To make the muscle, to make it like the muscle that we're used to eating. Yeah. So to do this, they think maybe they, if they do, if they stretch it or some other things, yeah. uh, to basically to mimic, to mimic. Who knows what the method will be? But they got to mimic the effective movement on muscle. And so from what I could gather, though, even this exercised muscle, if they if they figure that out, it won't. It's not like you're going to be eating a pork chop or a steak. Because the technique that they're using, it sounds like they're producing what's called loose muscle. It's like uh, the technique produces loose muscle, kind of like what you would find in ground pork or hamburger meat. The holy grail of cultured meat uh, would be a way to get to grow structured muscle, like a steak. Uh, but this is a, apparently this is very very complicated, and, and I don't think anyone's really working on that precisely. I think uh, the companies or the research institutes that are working on this are kind of working on this loose kind of this loose technique. Uh, so you can get things like you can make a sausage because that's just ground, you know, ground pork. Anything that's that's ground or processed, you'll be able to create using this technique. So they're making meat paste. That's basically what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> you can brush your teeth. Honestly, with it, though, when it comes down to it, like our tofu products are pretty much reaching the point where they taste an awful lot like that when it comes to the ground stuff. I wouldn't know. What we really need is bacon. Because veggie bacon sucks. Yes. Yeah. Uh, right. And then, like, yeah, your your <laughs> ribs, does. your T bones, things like that. The benefits, though, using this technique are, I think, are pretty interesting. 
the, first of all, you're lessening the need to kill animals to eat, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's one of the bottom lines. I, I mean, I don't have much of a problem with you know with killing stupid animals like chicken, uh, but every now and then, <laughs> stupid chickens, right? stupid chicken. <laughs> But every now and then, you know, in between bites of spare ribs, I briefly think uh, it's too bad the pig had to die. And then, of course, I grab another spare rib. But pigs, I mean, pigs are pretty Dog. damn smart. They're smarter than dogs, you know, so it's... And, and also, there's a sustainability issue where growing things, like if you could grow something in a lab at a, a fairly brisk pace uh, and at a cheaper cost oh, absolutely. Than, than growing a pig... Then yeah, I mean that's that's huge. NASA, right? NASA actually was one of the first people to first um, companies to really look at this because they were looking at ways to uh, you know to right. feed astronauts over over long missions. So you know if you don't have to bring a cow, just you bring the, the raw materials you need and you can grow all, all sorts of meat. Yeah, and they but eat other, they mm-hmm. eat meat paste. They, they'll squeeze it in their mouth through that tube. They eat, they don't. <laughs> I don't know right. if you've ever tubes. tried to put a cow on right. a space shuttle, but it is not easy because you have to fit yeah, it with that like, like catheter the and the yeah. diaper and everything and the. The helmet. And the seatbelts are really, really big. So, Bob, are they going to be able to grow this meat salted and smoked flavor? Mm. <laughs> Eventually. I, I, I see no reason why they can't throw in uh, those those ingredients uh, while, while they're cooking it Could they make some A1 sauce to go on top of it? That's actually another one of the benefits is because it's not like you're, gonna, you have, you're limited to growing just like pork or meat. You could actually tweak this stuff to make it has, have less saturated fats, you know, be more nutrient-dense. You could really oh. tweak it and make it into an incredibly nutritious food Rebecca. That, that hopefully will still taste really good and very similar to the original. <laughs> They're going to grow the omega-3. Oh, <laughs> man. Oh, it's on. And you, <laughs> I'm going to weigh 400 pounds. You mentioned that recently I – I bought some uh, whole wheat pasta because I actually prefer whole wheat pasta. Yeah, break. And unbeknownst to me, it had omega three in the in the so pasta. So like that. So I'm, I'm I'm cooking up this pasta. I'm like what smells like <gasps> fish? Oh, which, what a turn By the off. way, I despise. I can I oh. hate that omega three fishy taste. Unfortunately, and they, they they tainted perfectly good pasta with fishy oh, taste. Nasty. How can you make fish taste? Oh my god, it was disgusting. So I'm I'm concerned about the omega three bacon not tasting Eek. like fish. Yeah, Jay, remind remind listeners. This was a while ago. This is when I first came on board SGU. Well, no, okay, it went up to ten. No, I said that if they made omega three bacon, I'd eat. And we kept betting, and I think I'm up to ten pounds if they ever made it. <laughs> I've seen people take bacon bacon strips and weave it. And they weave it, and then they cook it, so it comes out basically like a big block, like a deck of cards. Like a I mean, I'd look, <laughs> what's it with you with the deck of cards? Like a basket of bacon. <laughs> I saw a girl make a bra out of bacon. And then um, a listener who is a bacon enthusiast, and she's been sending me tons of bacon stuff. She <laughs> okay. sent me. Uh, she sent me bacon smelling soap. Sent you. No, not no, she sent it. it to me on Facebook. She she said she links like crazy. She sends me everything. Wait, wait. Then she she found a a mug of beer that was made out of bacon. That's amazing. I, I saw it. I saw it. Uh, and that's I told right. her I told her I'm like, how can you like prevent yourself from like you like take a sip of beer? Like how do you not bite into the mug? <laughs> no, no, yeah, that'd be perfect. It's like an ice cream cone. You bite a little bit of mug every time you drink the beer down past that point. Uh <laughs> Or the fajita salads that come in a tortilla, yeah. right? Or the bread bowls. Guys, one one other point. There's other benefits, but one one really funny, interesting one is uh, the potential exotic meats. 
And that with with this technique, there's no reason why oh, yeah. why you couldn't eat meats from really exotic animals because it, it's not e- economically feasible to breed, say, lions for, for meat because their lions are secondary consumers. They eat animals that eat plants. But with this technique, you could actually you know, sell lion meat or or armad- armadillo meat or some or, or create or you right yeah. right how about this would you guys would you guys try human no how about pangolin <laughs> or oh, even extinct why not you could even be extinct animals if you we don't uh, i think mammoth. i would try i would try human if it were brontosaurus burgers we'll finally get brontosaurus burgers <laughs> brontosaurus doesn't even exist Steve, Rebecca just spent a half an hour ass. crying about <laughs> they, they said that steve would eat babies and she's like i'll eat human <laughs> I would eat a baby if it were grown in a lab. Wait, Rebecca, what do you think? Like this arm is going to come out of a petri dish and be like, "Oh man!" You know that the age of age of autism people are listening to this show right now. <laughs> Take your right. notes. They're like Rebecca Watson would eat a baby. Alert! <laughs> alert! Newsflash! Newsflash! But regarding this whole news item, though, Bob, I predict that. Um, like a lot of things that are truly innovative like this, we, we won't really be able to tell for a while how, if at all, this will be incorporated uh, because there, there are things will come up like the texture right. and yep. the cost and whatnot that you just can't predict. And people may just decide not they don't like it for whatever reason or somebody may figure out some way to use it in some niche and then it'll explode. You just, <laughs> Ooh, explode. You just don't know. I like Absolutely. I agree. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, has a huge, it has a huge obstacle to overcome. Yeah. In, just you know, look at GMO crops. You know, pe- yeah. people are freaked out about that. <laughs> so yeah, true. it'll come down, I think, to economics and marketing more than the science. Well, keep working hard, scientists, and thank you. Good job. Well, we're going to turn from pork, pork. to fat. <laughs> pork fat. That was a good segue. That was a good segue. Peru police <laughs> um, made a little boo boo. They got caught up in a bit of a witch hunt. Yeah. You guys hear about this? Mr. Murga, who's a police officer uh, in Peru, told journalists that they had four suspects who had confessed to gruesome murders, reviving an Andean legend uh, where mythical killers murdered people and then sold their fat, uh, claiming that they could get thousands of dollars per liter of human fat. For, uh, for what reason? I don't know. Is there a big human fat market? <laughs> you know what? There's really market. not. Because it's so ubiquitous. It's actually... It's actually quite expensive uh, to make soaps and things like that from human fat. So this story reeked of hoax from the right. very start. Actually, and it turns out it was all a big hoax. <laughs> Just surprise, surprise. <laughs> they were they made it. They made a mistake that uh, <laughs> they were unable to corroborate <laughs> any of the dozens. It's called a typo. <laughs> yeah. So they <laughs> there were dozens of alleged disappearances in the region, and they were unable to to corroborate a single one of and them. Therefore. <laughs> This is another example of how you know, law enforcement officers can find themselves, you know, buying into something that is a complete fabrication or a witch hunt. You know, essentially they, through confirmation bias and you know logical fallacies and the common witch hunt things, where you you explain away the lack of evidence as being part of the story that you're building. These guys are really good at it. That's why they don't leave yeah, any evidence one, behind. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, uh, uh, and you end up with you know building a case out of nothing, even to the point where you call a press conference and say we have this, you know, this uh, ring of fat murders. You know, and um, <laughs> of course, you no. Know, as a result, so Peru's chief of police, 
uh, Miguel Hidalgo announced that Mr. Murga would be put on indefinite leave from his job for sullying the reputation of his unit. Oh, boy. As he should be, because that's, that's a big no-no. And again, it just goes to show you that you know, in any investigatory endeavor, you need to have a constant presence of skepticism. Otherwise, you can you know, be utterly fooled by things that should be obvious. Well, apparently, um, this, uh, the idea of fat people being murdered uh, for their fat was a, a really old urban legend. Yeah. Um, that had traveled around for quite some time. And I, I heard the news story, and within hours, I think, it, it showed up on a... There's a really great website I follow called Museum of Hoaxes. Oh, that's a I think great it's just museumofhoaxes.com. Great website. And, uh, yeah, that, that guy had had that article up with, in an instant with information on, like, no, I'm not going to say that this is... BS, but this sounds like BS because, uh, and then he went into the fact that um, this this idea of fat people being killed um, and their fat harvested actually is this weird legend that goes back quite some time and it's been recycled over and over again, but it, it never really made mm-hmm. it outside of its local area until this one, and so then these gullible foreign news services picked it up immediately and ran with it to, yeah. you know, their detriment. Yeah, I'm still, like, still waiting for the FBI agent to finally <laughs> crack that kidney-stealing case. You know, right. The, the woman gets, steals Waking kidneys up in from a people. Waking bathtub of ice. <laughs> right, right. There's reports all over the place of somebody's <laughs> cousin's brother's. <you> know. <laughs> well, let's move on to some emails. Uh, we got about a thousand emails criticizing us for our coverage of the climate gate fiasco. And we also it, got half that many praising us, so, you know, to be fair. Yes. Th- that's, that's true. The, 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 the critical emails were remarkably similar. I mean, they, they, they all hit the same two or three themes pretty directly. I wrote back to, to many of the people who did email us with, uh, with those criticisms, and most of them did, based upon my response, did say, okay, I see that you know it wasn't as bad as I thought. And one guy even said, oh, I went back and listened to the show when I was wrong, and you guys weren't saying what, what I accused you of saying. But here, here's a, the highlights, rather than reading through them all. Here's, um, one point was a, a lot of criticism for characterizing climate change skeptics as climate change change deniers. This is actually a really complicated issue and one that I'm often conflicted over because I do find that it can be counterproductive to use labels to create, you know, false dichotomies and to to pigeonhole people. I I brought it up and when I did bring it up I mentioned that we should call them uh call a, a a subset of the climate change, what they call climate change skeptics, call them climate change deniers in the same way that we call other groups of people who try to co-opt the word skeptic deniers, and that includes Holocaust deniers as well as um, HIV AIDS deniers, um, uh, moon landing deniers, all of those sorts. A lot of people took issue with the fact that I mentioned the word Holocaust because they thought that was some sort of poisoning the well. It's not. I, I was only making the comparison in the way that we are to distinguish a skeptic from a denier. And there is an important distinction between a skeptic and a denier. 
Right. I'm not saying that all people who question certain studies, who question certain conclusions are climate change deniers. Uh, I was referring to a specific set of people uh, who happen to be the most uh, outspoken, the most rabid right. uh, yeah, of the them. Right, the extremists, yes. um, yeah, the extremists. Which, as, is, which, as is, which is who we were talking about last week. To get to put this back into into context, we were referring to the the re- revealed emails from the Climate Research Unit in the UK, and essentially making the point that the extremist climate deniers were were jumping on this as vindication, and they really were overcalling it and prematurely making you know very extreme pronouncements about the implications of these emails that's who we were talking about i was very clear i thought you were very clear that we're not talk that we're talking about this extreme subset uh, of people who i do think deserve by definition you you know they, this is who the people that we think are the deniers interestingly just about every response that we got that was critical said almost word for word, that we said that anybody who has any doubts about any aspect of climate change is a denier. That's exactly what we didn't say. We went out of our way not to... But I do want to emphasize that again this week, that there's, first of all, there's multiple claims within climate change. There's, is the planet warming? Is it man-made forcing? Or to what degree is it man-made forcing? What is the impl- what are the implications of this? What's going to happen in the future, and what and what are the out- what are the consequences of it? And what steps can and should we be taking to fix it? So you can I, mean, I think it's perfectly legitimate to, to in fact to have a lot of skepticism about a lot of proposed alleged fixes to climate change. That's different than questioning the the more basic scientific. A point of just that the fact that the, the you know average tempers, temperatures on the earth are trending up, um, so you, you, we absolutely cannot lump them all together. We specifically do not lump them all together. I do think there's lots of room for legitimate skepticism. I know I've made the point on previous shows that the IPCC, the UN's body that reviews this data periodically, said, yeah, it's about ninety percent. Ninety percent sounds like a high number, but ten percent is a lot of wiggle room in science. You know, so even they are admitting that there are limits to our ability to project this into the future. And I specifically mentioned that there is a legitimate role for minority skepticism in these kinds of very important scientific endeavors. So I'm not sure you know, why there was that un- almost unanimity in saying that we were calling every type of skepticism denial. And a- another common theme um, was the idea that calling anyone a denier just shouldn't be done. That de- denial, uh, denier are negative words, and that it uh, fosters an us versus them sort of uh, environment, which I, I couldn't disagree with more. I think that um, it's it's an important word, and it has a real definition. And the fact that it's a negative connotation is entirely deserved. It, it perfectly describes people who who will reject something um, without even considering it as an option, without looking at the evidence. That's what denial is. And it's important for us, I think, to maintain the integrity of the word skeptic. I think it's a good word. A lot of people want to change it, want to move to bright or, or something else. Um, I think skeptic is a perfectly good word that other groups are trying to co-opt, groups who aren't Mm. using actual critical thinking skills. So uh, for that reason, I think it's important to to call out when someone is 
um, using the word skeptic, but is not actually being skeptical. And that's right. why we use the word denier or denial when it's called for. Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of the false dichotomy versus false continuum demarcation problem, right? Ah. It's like, is there, we don't want to separate people into two discrete groups as if there isn't a continuum hmm. between. However, however, the fact that there is a continuum doesn't mean there aren't people at the extremes that we can fairly characterize in one way or the other. I think there are people yeah. that can be fairly characterized as deniers without saying that anybody with any doubts is a denier. Again, there, there's still this spectrum and there's still room for legitimate, very needed skepticism on many issues. Um, which is interesting, and I do think, you know, again, I said I do think that at times um, people could be a little bit too loose with the terminology and can use it as a rhetorical weapon. This is a, a can of worms I probably shouldn't open, but I do think just to pull another example from within the, the broader skeptical movement, I, there are people who you are using the term accommodationist to sort of pigeonhole and to denigrate anyone who does not take the most extreme stance against religion, for example. Or, uh, and again, you get to people who say, well, am I an accommodationist if I think that maybe we should be nice to them? And where, where do you draw the line between you know, the range of opinions about how to uh, oppose the irrationality of some religions versus being you know, someone who is trying to merge science and religion. You know, so if someone's trying to merge science and religion, that maybe it's fair to call them an accommodationist or who refuses to criticize, you know, uh, anti-science irrationality within religion or pretend like you can be a creationist and an evolutionist at the same time. But, but again, it's, it's this continuum, but the word, I think, can be used to try to collapse it into a false dichotomy. So I think we have to be careful. You could certainly say that about just about any label. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and, and you're right that it is, it's important to, to be you know, on your toes when it comes to uh, not being too quick to apply a label to someone uh, who, who may not deserve it. Um, and, and then on the other hand, it's important to remember that you know, language is important and the words we use uh, to right. convey what we want to talk about are extremely important and we need, need, we need to uh, make sure that when we're, when we're talking about something that everyone's on board with, with the definitions that we're using. Right. And so I think that's one of the, the reasons why we're doing this, why we're explaining exactly what we mean when we say denier. Or, and, you know, and ironically, a lot of the people who criticized us then went right around and tried to lump us in as apologists. Yeah, for yeah, or, um, or yeah, or, so again, they were doing exactly what they were sort of recoiling from when they, I think, falsely perceived that we were doing. And just to clarify the position I was trying to articulate on ClimateGate, clearly a lot of things were said in those emails that's concerning. I said, I said it's rightfully embarrassing, and it's deserving of investigation. However. None of it amounts to smoking gun evidence of actual scientific fraud, and it's that that I was objecting to. I think we need to let the chips fall where they may. We need, again, this needs to be transparently investigated, and the, the update since we recorded is that the, the head of the CRU did step aside and, and until the yeah. investigation has a chance to be carried out. That's a pr probably a reasonable thing to do, given, uh -huh. given, given the level of attention this is getting. And I, I do object to, I think, a lot of people who are on the, the extreme, I think, again, you know, anti-global warming position, saying now, as if it's established fact that the data's been cooked, data was purged, 
data was hidden. Those are not established facts. We have innuendo and circumstantial evidence that needs to be investigated. Before we start put, trying to put that nail in the coffin of global warming, we're trying to draw big conclusions about the implications of these quote-unquote facts, let's first and see if they're true or not. And the more I read about it, the more, you know, we're going to go through a period where this is going to get more and more complicated before we start to see what really happened. Let me give just one example of things that I've learned in the last week reading about this. The issue of the CRU dumping the raw data, which again, at the extreme, you know, quote-unquote deniers are saying that they're hiding their, their manipulation of data and their fraud. Mm, okay, but there's other things to bring to bear. First of all, the data, the raw data that they're talking about, a lot of it was not owned by the CRU. It was generated by other institutions, and then the CRU you know, is gathering it uh, into one place and using it for their climate models. But they, they, part of the reason why they didn't you know, freely give it out was because they didn't own it and they had non-disclosure agreements. And it's also not the only copy of the raw data. There have been some claims coming in which have yet to be substantiated, but that that 95% of the raw data has already been made available. We'll see if that turns out to be true or not. But the raw data may still exist in in the original sources, the people who gave it to the CRU in the first place. Also, they liken the some of the handling of the data as if it were like, quote-unquote, cooking the data, when in fact it was characterized as um, homogenizing the data, which could simply mean taking data from different places and then putting it in the same units. You know what I mean? So the difference between the raw, quote-unquote, raw data and the, uh, the adjusted data may be as simple as just making a simple ad- a unit adjustment so that all the, the data from different sources can be put into the same database or the same table. It, it reminded me of the moon hoaxers saying that NASA manipulates the raw image data they get from the satellites when they're talking about the most basic processing that you have to do to raw image data in order to get an actual image out of it. You know what I mean? So what are, they, what are we really talking about here? Let's investigate first, and then we can decide later if anything fraudulent or illegal or untoward was actually done, or is this all just making a lot of hay about circumstantial evidence that may all have an innocent explanation? Um, I think, you know, no matter what, they can't get away from some of the embarrassing comments that they made, but it remains to be seen if anything bad actually happened. Well, we'll keep everyone updated as this story evolves. We'll certainly be following it closely and you know, day by day, there's more interesting information coming out. Uh, but I think that uh, should be enough clarification of our position for now. And why don't we go on to our interview? Joining us now is Steve Toms. Steve, welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate this. Hey, Steve. Steve is the editor in chief of Skeptic North which is a skeptical group pan-Canadian blog. And we are here to talk to you about one issue that you guys have been tackling, and that is the uh, attempt that's being made by naturopaths in Canada to uh, gain the right to prescribe medications. Can you tell us about that? Well, it's um, been framed in the language of a bill. Back in the spring, there was a bill called Bill 179, and it was written to reduce the strain on family doctors 
by giving various health professionals new responsibilities, such as nurse practitioners, radiologists, uh, pharmacists, physiotherapists, etc. But unfortunately, uh, near the end of the process of making it into law, uh, there, the bill was deferred to a standing committee on social policy, and in that standing committee, they in, injected naturopaths to have the right to prescribe medication. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of what uh, we've been dealing with, I guess. And it's amazing how that, that process works and how, how provisions like that could be just slipped into bills really without any kind of public debate on the issue. And, uh, you know, if same thing is true in the United States at the state level, even at the federal level. If if you're vigilant enough and you're, you know, you can and uh, you have the ability to lobby, you can get these, you know, mischievous provisions slipped into bills, and yeah. into these, you know, especially the bigger the bill, the easier it is to hide it. Yeah, and th- this bill itself was a huge bill. It incorporated various previous acts of Ontario provincial parliament. After the, the first reading, which was back in, in May, the naturopath recommendation was shut out. And after the second reading, it was also shut out, but there was a write-in campaign, and that's when it got deferred. It was approved in, in its final format and ordered for a third reading, and in provincial politics in Canada, third means final reading, and it's almost always just ceremonial at that point. So, uh, so has the third reading occurred yet? Yes, it did. And, and it got through, so now it's law, basically. Uh, it will become law, yeah. Um, it said bill carried. And that, yeah, that basically means approved. Okay, so we we just lost this one, right? They did they slipped this one under the radar. Yeah, they did. But we took a lot of lessons from this. Mm-hmm. Um, our organization, Skeptic North, is really young. We've only been in operation since October first of this year, and we've had very little time to um, organize our strategies and our plans and all that kind of stuff. But we only, and also we only started acting against this particular amendment because also we aren't against the bill it's just this little amendment we had about two and a half weeks of activity and we made it a national media story mm-hmm. we got uh, mainstream media press um and also it, it, it circulated around the blogosphere both skeptic and science blogs you know so people are some people at least are thinking twice about this now which wouldn't have happened because this was a sleeper issue before we tackled it. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of sleeper issues that that skeptical community is are the ones to bring to light. It's part of our job, right? It's just to keep an eye on these sort of things. And then, and then, I think the beauty of the internet now and Web 2.0, as we've said before, is that small groups like yours can make an issue a, a national issue to bring it to bring it to light. And then, of course, you know, we blogged about it on science-based medicine. We picked up on it, and we you know you can we can amplify it many many more times. But it's unfortunate that were you think were you just too late to the issue, or was the naturopath lobby just too strong? Were you, did you just not have the infrastructure to get to the right people? So what was lacking that that we can fix for the next time around? Um, I, I hate to say all of the above, but all of the above. Okay. <laughs> the ordering for a third reading was made on October twentieth, and at that point, we had all kind of assumed that uh, as it was turned down after the first and second reading that it wasn't going to be an issue. Um, so it, it kind of got deferred, and we didn't really realize it until it was, it was too late. So th- there was a, a timing issue. 
Mm-hmm. Also, as I mentioned, like Skeptic North is a really young organization, um, and we've never done something at this scale before. We were learning how to do this as it was happening. It was, it was kind of like a, this weird on-the-job training. Um, we were also building our uh, media contacts and our skeptical contacts while we were begging them for help sort of right, thing. Right. Well, just for our listeners, and so if a reporter – from a major news outlet contacts you about this issue and said, well, why is this a bad thing? Why shouldn't naturopaths have the right to prescribe medicines? What would you tell them? Well, actually, um, I was on Calgary radio last night um, and I answered that very same question. The problem is that naturopaths do not have the medical training to prescribe medical drugs. And that's kind of the bottom line here. The counter argument that we've faced a lot is that they face eight years, that is naturopaths have eight years of education but that's taking into account four years of university training in the undergrad, which they're not affiliated with. Like no naturopathic college in Canada is associated with a Canadian university. So that's kind of taking credit for the university system. And also eight years, I mean, it's (laughs) – I can study unicorn breeding for eight years, but that doesn't mean that unicorns exist. Um, Quality of education also matters here. Right. I mean, I, of course, I agree with you. I mean, just again, for our listeners who may not be aware, naturopaths are a, a real, really like a cult-like medical uh, pseudo-profession. They believe in a hodgepodge of just about any unscientific modality that's out there. They prescribe homeopathy and acupuncture, and they believe in you know a lot of unsubstantiated notions like you know magnetic fields call, cause a lot of diseases, and they they prescribe very restrictive diets, uh, you know, thinking that food allergies or, or, or effects or can cause a lot of problems. Um, they, you know, mm. n- never saw a, a supplement they didn't like. So they, again, does, yeah, as you, I agree. I, and my colleague, Harriet Hall calls it, calls it tooth fairy science, which I think is perfect. <laughs> it's like you could do all kinds of scientific studies about the tooth fairy and, and you know the the how the size of the tooth relates to the amount of money that gets left behind and you know whatever it doesn't make the tooth very real right you're, yeah. you're, you're still all just the, the underlying premises are pseudoscientific and therefore the entire endeavor is false and and this also gets to the notion that this is uh, naturopaths trying to expand the scope of their practice which usually happens once they get licensure and also trying to to function as primary care healthcare providers you know yeah. being the first person that somebody sees when they're sick which is scary because they they don't have the training and and they they don't have the dedication to science so this is a very unfortunate thing yeah. can i ask you what what's the status of naturopaths in canada um they've kind of been going under the, under the radar now we have um in in, in various parts of the country, we have a, a, a bit of a, a doctor shortage. And what concerns me is that when naturopaths proclaim themselves to be naturopathic doctors, that little twist of language can be really appealing to somebody who doesn't understand or it, it perhaps not educated in what naturopathy means. Um, they could be very easily dazzled by that natural solution. Mm-hmm. They are a pretty powerful organization, or pretty fo- powerful, I should say, uh, collection of uh, colleges and uh, organizations and, and, and associations and that sort of thing. Um, they've kind of had a bit of a, um, I don't want to say free reign, um, but in 2007, Ontario passed the Naturopathy Act. And that act defines a naturopath as a member 
of a naturopathic college. And if you look at the naturopathic colleges in Canada to see what courses they offered, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. You said it's a hodgepodge. Um, they teach homeopathy. They have extensive homeopathy courses in traditional Chinese medicine and hydrotherapy. It's this massive yeah, hodgepodge, I guess, <laughs> is the best way to say it. Um, there's very little oversight, um, and it varies from province to province. Um, I can't speak too much about the other provinces just yet, um, but in Ontario, they're regulated under the Naturopathy Act and the Drugless Practitioners Act. Um, there's very clear guidelines as to what procedures they're allowed and not allowed to, to perform. Well, is that now an oxymoron, the Drugless what did you say, the Drug Practitioner Act? The Drugless Practitioners Act. Um, Can now prescribe drugs. <laughs> well, uh, the bill itself is referring to the Naturopathy Act for the expansion of prescription, but as far as regulatory agencies, that part was deferred to the Drugless Practitioners Act. Mm-hmm. So they have the same oversight that a physiotherapist has, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's not dissimilar to the U.S. where you know professionals are licensed by each state. And naturopaths have been fighting in every state to get licensure, and they've they've succeeded in 15 or so different states. Chiropractors are licensed in all 50 states in the United States. And similar kind of process, just chiropractors are about 50 years ahead of naturopaths. So obviously there's a lot of, lot of concern about this kind of thing because it does erode the the meaning, you know, to the public of what it, it means to be a licensed professional, right? If you, uh, and again, I love the quote from Edzard Ernst when he says, the most meticulous, a little bit of a paraphrase, the most meticulous regulation of nonsense must still result in nonsense, right? But the, the argument always goes, well, if you regulate us, then that'll be quality control, but it never does because it all... It, all it does is um, allow naturopaths to, to regulate themselves, and and the licensure is nothing more than just the, the a sort of a false authority that is, gets lent by the government. Well, that and regulation generally refers to safety, but safe doesn't mean effective either. A glass of water is perfectly right. safe. Yeah, so they may they will emphasize the safety of those interventions like homeopathy that do nothing, but. But prescribing ineffective therapies is not safe, nor is it cost-effective, no matter how cheap it is. Right, so that's another argument they use. And also with naturopaths, it's, what's interesting is that a lot of the uh, endeavors to get licensure is, uh, at least in the United States, is an attempt for one group of naturopaths to actually exclude another group of naturopaths, right? They say, you have to license us so only the good naturopaths can practice, only us, and we want to keep these other naturopaths who have a different tradition and different training from competing with them. So it's usually just, it's using the process to just, to to get rid of their competitors. Yeah, it's really bizarre. Um, When we posted about this at Skeptic North, um, we had a naturopath comment on one of our entries, and uh, somebody had brought up ear candling, and they said, oh, no, I don't do ear candling. I need extra training for that. <laughs> you need extra training for ear candling. <laughs> and it's also should be pointed out, too, that the sale of ear candling products is illegal in Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, this is not a safe procedure. Right, right. Well, tell us a little bit more about the Skeptic North. So how, 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 you guys, are you a membership organization, or at this point is it primarily a, a group blog? Well, right now we are a group blog. We started... Uh, on, or rather, I should say, we launched on October first. But the um, uh, early process goes back to TAM Seven when a bunch mm-hmm. of uh, Canadian skeptics had a meetup, 
And um, afterwards, they set up this communications infrastructure, which we all kind of communicated with back, back and forth. And out of that came the blog itself. And um, we're comprised of skeptic writers, bloggers, professionals, academics, and uh, just regular average skeptic Joes, rank and file right. as well. And we're, we're reasonably covered from coast to coast. We have a lot of representation in B.C. and uh, Ontario. And we, we have a few out in uh, Alberta as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we're aim, or rather, our aim is to be the authority of skeptic issues in Canada. And that's mm-hmm. kind of why we, we took this particular mantle up with uh, the Natural Pass in Ontario. Well, it's great that you're getting organized. We'll definitely um, add you guys to the to the, our virtual Rolodex as you know, our Canadian colleagues. And there's always there's always more issues out there to tackle than we have people or resources to do. So, hooking up together and getting organized is definitely helpful. Uh, I had mentioned to you, I think we were talking about this issue that um, we have recently formed uh, another group called the Institute for Science and Medicine. Yeah, uh, which is Right now, we have I think forty-two physicians. It's an international organization, so it includes you know Canadians as well as the U.S. and Australia and Europe. Essentially, to tackle these issues, uh, the intrusion of pseudoscience into medicine. Yeah. And so again, we're just forming as well. So this was an issue that came on our radar, but we never really were able to mobilize to do anything about it in time, and we had. You know, the American health reform is, is kind of taking a high mm-hmm. profile as well. So we definitely need to build our infrastructure so that we can react to these things quickly enough. Or maybe next time around, you know, we'll, we'll be able to keep these kinds of laws from getting passed in the dead of night. Well, and what Skeptic North has been able to do in, the, in our very brief existence is we have regular mainstream media coverage in Canada. Um, a, a major newspaper up here regularly prints our posts. Um, I've had, I think, four of my posts go up on the National Post, and um, the it, the issue that brought up, uh, or rather blew the whistle on this naturopath thing in Ontario, that was in print, and it was a full page um, in the mainstream media. And it, it's been delightful. And so we're building our media contacts, and we're building our skeptic contacts, and um, it's absolutely delightful to see how connected or how advantageous uh, a, a connected organization can be. Right. Recently, we kind of called on the help of our skeptic friends on Twitter and Facebook, and they rallied to our cause, and they led this amazing argument against naturopathy um, at the National Post blog. And it was just beautifully worded. It, it, it reads like uh, how to debate a naturopath. It's mm-hmm. brought a tear to my eye. It was actually, it's, it's quite beautiful. <laughs> Well, it's great. Well, good work on forming your new group and joining the struggle and taking on these issues. All right, Steve, thanks for talking with us. Hey, well, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate this a lot. All right, take care. Thanks, Steve. Night. For anyone interested in this new Canadian skeptical group, you can visit their webpage at skepticnorth.com or you can contact them at skepticnorth at gmail.com. It's time for Science. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one totally fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. 
There's a theme this week. I haven't had a theme in a long time. Uh, I love themes. I hate themes. I hate themes. I love themes. The theme is astronomy. Uh-huh. See, it's okay. a good thing. Are we All, ready? You guys are, theme. you guys are theme deniers. Right, here we go. Item number one. Astronomers have discovered vast clouds of metallic atoms, specifically chromium, 30 million solar masses, and manganese, 8 million solar masses, in intergalactic space. Item number two, new observations suggest that the globular clusters that swarm around the Milky Way's galactic bulge each harbor a supermassive black hole at their center. Item number three, astronomers have described a new type of supernova resulting from a 200 solar mass star that took 70 days to reach peak brightness and exploded so powerfully that it did not leave behind a remnant to form a black hole. Evan, go first. Okay, so the first one was about the vast clouds of metallic atoms in intergalactic space. Yeah, I don't see why they couldn't make some kind of measurements and then make extrapolations based on those measurements, so I I think that's pretty plausible. The second one was that the globular clusters that swarm around our Milky Way's galactic bulge are each harboring a supermassive black hole at their center. Wow, I thought... The conventional wisdom was that there was a supermassive black hole at the center of the of the galaxy itself, but not anything else, like the globular clusters. So that would be very new and different, but a supermassive black hole. Well, don't you think they could have detected that kind of gravity and other effects that would be having much sooner than recently? I would think so. But the third one is fascinating. The most fascinating, I think. A new type of supernova, resulting from 200 solar mass star, took 70 days reach, reaching peak brightness, but exploded so powerfully, it didn't leave a remnant to form a black hole. I, I don't know how they de- described a new type of supernova. I don't know how that's possible. I always thought the black hole was had to be there in the case of supernova explosion. Having trouble digesting that one. But I'll say that the globular clusters one, I'll say that one is the fiction. Okay, Rebecca? See, that's funny because that's the one that I thought was the most likely to be true. <laughs> For me, it was between the... One and um, three. Yeah. <laughs> between metallic atom and new type of supernova. Because I was thinking the new type of supernova seemed plausible at first, but then I thought maybe you're trying to mix this up because there's that new Super Mario Brothers... And that maybe you're just trying to mix this up in that case. However, I'm going to say that astronomers have not discovered vast clouds of metallic atoms in intergalactic space. That sounds fishy to me. Okay, Bob? Yeah, that's certainly a lot of chromium. 30 million solar masses. Wow, that would take... A lot of supernovas over lots of years to, yeah. to build that up. Some so, Somehow all of that kind of accumulated close together. It's, I guess it's feasible, but wow, that's very, very interesting. The amounts are just staggering, 30 million solar masses. That's, that's a lot. Uh, let's see, the second one. Yeah, the, the supermassive black holes in the globular clusters. I didn't think there was enough globular clusters generally have, what, 100,000 stars? Not a hell of a lot more than that. Um, I just don't think that that the supermassive black hole in the middle of that could could have, you know, whatever 
what a million a million solar masses that doesn't sound right and i think i agree with evan i think we would have we would have noticed uh, the gravitational uh source for that um a long time ago so i'm very i'm skeptical or maybe i'm just denying that one <laughs> let's see uh the new type of supernova that's that's quite a a bold claim a new type of supernova 200 solar mass star hmm 70 days to reach peak brightness. I guess I could see that. That's not as unsettling as the fact that it exploded so powerfully that it left no remnant. That I've never. I don't think I've ever even heard of that before. I I don't know. Maybe the somehow the, the mechanics of the super of the explosion itself left so little behind that it's either undetectable or or really just nothing there. I I, I guess that's possible because um, there's so much we still are learning about supernovas. That makes more sense to me, I guess, than the uh, the supermassive black hole in the globular clusters, which I will say are fiction. Yes. Okay. Jay? Okay, so astronomers have discovered vast clouds of metallic atoms, thir- 30 million solar masses. That is huge. That That's like the size of 30 million suns. Precisely. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's almost like, like that. Yes, okay. almost. And we have chromium and manganese. Manganese. I can't think of a way that that would come into existence. And then why would why wouldn't it collect? Why wouldn't it collect into a, a, a tighter mass? I don't know. I don't know, guys. Cloud. This I know, but it, it's well. Okay, I got you, Bob. Second thing here: these new observations that suggest there's a supermassive black hole at the center of each lollipop. <laughs> oh my That's a good god! Way of putting it. All right. So basically, what we have is we have a bunch. Of globular clusters, and we're saying in each one of them, there's a supermassive black hole, and they've gone undetected up until now. Is that what you're saying, Steve? Maybe they're small supermassive black holes. I believe that's self-explanatory. I got you. All right. That at least is plausible, right? Yes. Thank you. Next one. (laughs) Astronomers have described a new type of supernova. Uh (laughs) Aha. You're trying to trick me at the end there, I think, though. Which one did you pick, Bob? I picked the globular cluster supermassive black hole. Uh, you know, my gut is telling me that it's the first one, so I am not going to pick the metallic atoms. I will not. So now I'm down to the last two, <laughs> and I and then I have a fifty fifty. I don't have a fifty fifty chance because of statistics. So I should well, change my answer. No, well, you're getting mixed yeah, up not, now. Not quite, but I know what. No, you're... this isn't the Monty Hall problem because I'm not telling you. What you don't to... get. You don't get a reveal. Yeah. I'm not opening up one of the doors and saying this is this one is science. All right, I'm going to go with Bob. I'm going to say that there are not supermassive black holes at the center of every one of the globular clusters. Okay, so you all agree that astronomers have described a new type of supernova resulting from a 200 solar mass star that took 70 days to reach peak brightness and exploded so powerfully <laughs> that it did not leave behind a remnant to form a black hole. Yes. And that one is... It is science. Wow. That's cool. Thank, that is cool. Inc- Thank you. That's incredible. That is incredible. Very cool. It's always nice when you find a new type of supernova. It is always nice, isn't it? Yeah. And a superior Mario Brother, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was predicted, actually. So this is f- finding the first example of one that was predicted from models. This is a, a pair instability supernova. It's yes. found in a dwarf galaxy. So imagine you have this 200 solar mass star. It's so massive. How massive is it? that the core of it itself is able to form a supernova rather than the whole thing. And Whoa. what happens is the high energies of the core are produce electron-proton pairs. 
yeah. and this bleeds energy away from the core, and right. it, it gets to a point where the energy is bleeding away from the core at such a rate that it could no longer sustain the gravitational attraction. Right, so stars don't yeah. collapse because the energy of the of the burning of the of the nuclear fuel pushes the star out and balances the force of gravity pushing in. Right. In this case, the core gets unstable and collapses because it doesn't have enough energy to to, to maintain itself against gravity. And this, they, they say, this is primarily because it's bleeding away energy through this electron-proton right. formation. So, so gravity wins it wins out. Gravity wins out. Yeah, gravity. And then it, it collapses, and it explodes so powerfully, it just blows apart the whole star, leaving nothing behind. Uh, it's an extremely bright uh, supernova, bright even for a supernova. Uh, the one that they're observing took 555 days to fade. Wow. Took 70 days to reach its peak. Wow. So usually, That's incredible. Usually supernovas last for, what, a couple weeks? Yeah. Yeah, something so this like that. Is, yeah, this is a lot longer. <laughs> How do you figure that, Steve? <laughs> That is wicked. Damn. Let's go back to number one. Astronomers have discovered vast clouds of metallic atoms, specifically chromium and manganese, in intergalactic space. Intergalactic. And that one is science. Science. Yes. Uh, Very nice. I keep losing. I'm on a losing streak. No, no. Don't look at it that way. Look you, at it as you, a not winning streak. No right to complain. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> So this is neat. There's uh, astronomers yeah. using the Suzaku Orbiting X-ray Observatory. Gesundheit. We're, we're able to identify these vast clouds of chromium, chromium and manganese in... Uh, in the Gamma Quadrant. Nope. <laughs> not, not in our galaxy. It's an intergalactic, in the intergalactic medium of the Perseus Galaxy Cluster. Perseus. So between galaxies, which is interesting. How does all of that... Metallic atoms get in between galaxies because the, the gravity must have funneled it there from the cluster, right? Is that is that how it did it? No, I'll be it's honest. I guess. don't know how metallic atoms get anywhere. So, Dark energy. but here, so here's the quick background. You know, the when the universe was created with the Big Bang, created. it was basically mostly hydrogen, some helium, little bit of lithium. <laughs> That's about it, right? That, you just got that from the Bare Naked Ladies song. I did. <laughs> the, you know, at the intro to the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, oh, I love, I love that. that. And, uh, but no, none of the heavier elements. Uh, re- regular stellar fusion can make ele- heavier elements up to iron, depending on how big the star is. And beyond iron, uh, elements have to be made in supernova. Cooked up, yes. Chromium and manganese come from supernova. So how does all of that chromium and manganese get in the intergalactic space? Why wouldn't it be in the galaxies where they were made in the supernova? Well, that's what's really fascinating about this. But what, ha- what they think happens <laughs> well, is that, that the quantity. when supernova occur, there are obviously extremely energetic events. It creates a flow. It basically blasts these materials out into the intergalactic medium where it collects. They say that the data sh- show that it took some 3 billion supernovas to produce the measured amounts of chromium and manganese. Wow. And that would have been over a period of billions of years. And that super winds carried the metals out of the cluster galaxies and deposited them into intergalactic space. What's a super wind? From, from the supernova. Gotcha. But don't they explode somewhat symmetrically? I mean, why a preferred... Direction. I mean, you would, you know what I mean. It's, it just doesn't shoot a jet of metal 
it's kind of symmetrically an, a shell, an expanding shell of uh But apparently it's not just debris. a shell. I mean, I think that's what they're saying. There's this... Yeah, this there is some directional on. flow from the uh-huh. energies of the supernova exploding. It says the supernova create vast outflows called superwinds, and that these galactic gusts transport heavy metals into the intergalactic void. Uh, just vague enough. Yeah, it's not giving us. Yeah, we've got to look it up. Yeah, that's all. Superwinds. Okay, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, but all this means that mm-hmm. new yeah. observations suggest that the globular clusters that swarm around the Milky Way galaxy bulge, each harbor a supermassive black hole at their center, is complete and total fiction. Ha, ah, there fiction. is no bulge. It's not really even based on anything. <laughs> I just made it up because I read that wow. we have no evidence for supermassive black holes <laughs> in the middle of the, of the globular cluster, so I knew I would be right in saying that. It was fiction that they were there. So, mm. no supermassive yeah. black holes at yeah, the center of globular clusters. We'd see some kind of gravitational effect from those. Yeah, well, the, the thing you could say is that they're at the bulge; they're obscured by dust. You know, you can't really see them very well. And you know, I don't think that they've entirely ruled out that there could be black holes. You know, floating around in there. Well, black also, holes are one thing. With supermassive black holes, that's another yeah. thing. That's why. That's why I think it. I mean, I'm sure there's black yeah. holes in there, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was some mini. You know, if there was like. 10, 20, 30 solar mass black holes in the center, but supermassive. Now that's the, the clusters only have like something like a hundred thousand, or maybe even right. maybe even a million. I forget what the number yeah, was. Yeah, but, but I had enough. to say that to make sure it was abnormal. It was fiction, yeah. though. Oh yeah. Um, I, I was reading about the hub at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. Uh-huh. Did you say the Hobbit? The hub. <laughs> that's a the hub. That's the a bulge. Book. Have you the read bulge. Tolkien's books? So much better than the movies. <laughs> yeah, there's oh, a, our galaxy. Boring as shit. Our galaxy has a bulge <laughs> at the middle, and not all spiral galaxies have bulges. And those bulges probably come from cannibalizing smaller galaxies, and they did identify one region of our bulge called Terzen 5, not Tarzan, Terzen. Yeah, Terzen. They get, yeah, they couldn't get the copyright from that. Yeah, and uh, that they th- has features which suggest that it probably is a remnant from a cannibalized dwarf galaxy that we ate some billions of years ago. Mm. Uh, Very interesting. Yeah. Really? So, e- so eating, it's, a, eating a baby galaxy. Yeah. yeah. I see. So it's yeah. not... <laughs> <laughs> I love oh, science or fiction good. with themes. Evan, that was, that that was, was pretty good. good. Uh, all right, Evan, can you please play for us? Who's that noisy from last week? Absolutely, and I actually have it queued up and ready to go. Here you are from last week. Who's that noisy? All right. And who was that noisy? That noisy was none other than the booming sound that the cockapoo bird makes. Mm-hmm. K-A-K-A-P-O. It's also known as the owl parrot, a species of flightless nocturnal parrot endemic to New Zealand. And they're adorable. Have you guys heard of Stephen Fry's most recent project, Last Chance to See? He's been going around... You, no. You've read the book no. uh, by Douglas Adams, of course, right? Yeah. Yes. Last chance to see, uh, yeah. Well, S- um, Stephen Fry was uh, traveling around the world revisiting the uh, the parts of the world where Douglas Adams visited. And I think that his um, the documentary is going to be coming out shortly, but he, he also revisited the, the Kakapo, which um, 
it's like the most charming bird on the planet because it has absolutely no fear of predators because it survived for so long without any predators coming after it. And so it basically immediately just runs up and starts humping Stephen Fry's cavern man, and it's adorable. So Very cool. Well, yeah, what's not to love about a nocturnal owl parrot? That humps you. Absolutely. Which, and which this, that hugs you. This, that noise was actually sent in by a listener, uh, Grant, listening from New Zealand. Who, Thank uh, you, Grant. Made us aware of that. Thanks for participating, Grant. We always appreciate it. And Grant, it. By, by an amazing coincidence, was also the first one to get it right. <laughs> isn't, that, <laughs> isn't that fascinating? No, no. That honor went to our dear friend, Bondurant, from the message boards. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, I did notice that there's a lot of, a lot of people throwing the, uh, the cockapoo around. Yes. <laughs> it's bad when you throw your cockapoo around. Yeah. But isn't a cockapoo a mix between a cocker spaniel and a poodle? Yeah. Yeah. No. What? That's confusing. Is that true, Jay? You're the dog aficionado. They breed everything with poodles. Dog. I know. You got pama poos and shit poos and. Watch your language, poos. Steve. <laughs> it's a family program. Yeah, shit shoes yeah. and, and poodles. Well, thank you, Evan. How about this yeah. week? What do you got lined up for yeah. us? Yeah, this week I got a good one lined up for you. Let's see if you can guess who's this noisy. So he was sure he was able to identify the craft. And started walking towards it. And as he did, the craft shifted out over the field. All right. So so he was sure he was able to identify the craft. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that was a female Saul. It really was. It was. It was. It was female Saul. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Have a whack at it. Give it your guess. That, best that's a weird guess. one. Give it a guess, Governor. That was a weird one, Ev. Good. Thank you, Evan. You're welcome. Jay, what's your quote for this week? Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. Marie Curie! Very timely with that, Jay. Right on the beat. You know who she is, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Marie? Yeah. Go ahead. Hit hit me with it. What do you know? She is a female sci- was a female scientist discovery um, involved in the discovery of radiation. Actually, And she died of it. Won died of two Nobel yeah, Prizes. She wasn't aware of yeah. Of the dangers of it. Yeah. Nobody was at the time. Two Nobel Prizes. And I think she was the first person to win two Nobel Prizes. Okay, so April 17th, April 17th, 2010 is the next Nexus event. And it again will be at the French Institute in Manhattan. It's a one-day event, very similar to the one we had in October. Save the date. We will give you more details as they become available. Since we're having people save dates for stuff... Mm-hmm. The TAM 8 dates have been announced, to July 8th to 11th, July 8th to 11th, so save that date as well. And while you're checking out randy.org, R-A-N-D-I.org, for TAM 8 information, don't forget it's their Season for Reason fundraising drive, and you can apply for the JREF Visa card, and you can also vote for the next image to appear on the, on the card. And, and and the dates have, have been announced for the very first TAM Australia. That, this also happens to be the reason why we've been saying we're going to Australia for the past year and yeah, a half. Yeah, this is our big trip to Australia, which they've 
part now expanded into a TAM Australia uh, for the this meeting of the Australian skeptics. Uh, I know that Brian Dunning is also confirmed. Obviously, we're all going to be there. Very excited to go. George Rabb's going. And George Rabb. Randy himself also has committed to go. Yeah, obviously that's pen- pending how he's doing. all yeah, as well, yes. The Australian Skeptics and the James Rennie Educational Foundation it will be hosting TAM Australia held in Sydney from November 26th to 28th in 2010. And it will be held at the Sydney Masonic Centre. More details, obviously. We will have details. The JREF and the Australian Skeptics will all have details. But again, that's the date. So those are three big events next year. Hey, everybody. I have an announcement to make. Sunday, the 20th of December, there is a fantastic show happening in London called Nine Lessons in Carols for Godless People. It's put on by Robin Ince. And he did it last year. It was a huge success. And so they, uh, they're actually going for several nights um, prior to this date, but they've all sold out. So this is the last night that it's available. And it's going to be, I think, the biggest show. It's at the Hammersmith Apollo at 7 o'clock. And it's got uh, Richard Dawkins, Dara Brian, uh, Baba Brinkman, uh, who's at TAM London, Simon Singh, um, Brian Cox, Ben Goldacre, I mean, it's going to be a huge show, and it's, uh, it's pretty cheap, actually, for what you get, uh, which is a fantastic night of science and comedy, and I'm going to be there, and I hope a bunch of our listeners are as well. Um, if you, uh, you can go to Ticketmaster and search for Nine Lessons and Carols, or I think you can also get there via Robin's site, which I think is just robinins.com. So thank you all again for joining me this week. Very Thanks, nice Steve. Show. Thank you, Steve. Anytime. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 